I think that great strength in emergency medicine is we actually take care of sick people. What a concept. This chest pain thing probably produces more anxiety within residents and graduates than anything else. We depend for our quote-unquote greatness on a system. What does the law say about these differing standards of care depending on the day of the week and the hour of the day? Newsflash, that's not how emergency medicine malpractice policies are sold. This is what docs do all the time. We do it all the time. And you get away with it. The feds don't care whether you give a service. They only care if you bill for it. It's not going to happen. That's legal gobbledygook. It's Greg Henry, and today we're actually in Kauai, Hawaii, and I'm with Mel Herbert. Hi, Mel. Hello, Greg. Boy, it is a tough job that we have here. It's Kauai. It's beautiful, although right now it's a little bit windy, a little bit wet, but in general, I mean, yes. it's still better than what, being New York forced, Being forced to drink all those frou-frou <laughs> drinks with umbrellas in them is not really the good thing. I hear that New York is absolutely covered, or, or the whole East Coast right now is absolutely covered, drenched in snow and sleet. Yes, it's ugly. For those of you who are usual listeners, you're missing one of the three stooges. <laughs> uh, good old Rick Bucata cannot be with us here today, so we are holding forth without him. Now, Mel, I think the first thing we ought to do today is catch up on mailbag. Yes. Uh, one thing we do have is we have some excellent, excellent listeners who are depending on what we have to say, and we have some listeners with some excellent credentials, and I think we need to comment on those. The first letter comes to us from Greg Moore. Greg is a listener and a fan, he claims, and he is an MD and a JD, which means he's going to keep us honest. Hmm. The first question he has commented upon is our problem with the Good Samaritan decision. A few tapings ago, we talked about that case in California where the California Supreme Court had taken what had been a tradition across the United States, basically, which is giving care or attempting to give reasonable care was actually overturned, and they were allowing a suit to proceed ahead on someone who had tried to get someone out of an automobile accident. Greg says in his letter to us, I didn't research yet, but there was a statement that no physician was successfully sued in a Good Samaritan decision or something like that. He says he doesn't know of any by-the-roadside decisions. And I think that's consistent with all of our experiences. The only state that I've actually checked that in is the state of Michigan, but I haven't heard of any. But he very correctly points out here that in-hospital Good Samaritan varies from state to state. There are states that have supported it and others who have not. Now, I think it behooves a doctor to know what the decisions have been in their own state with regard to this. There's a very famous case of a physician who was called in while he is doing rounds on a floor because a patient is doing badly. It's not his patient. He had no previous doctor-patient relationship. He had never seen the patient for anything. He had never rendered a bill, but a nurse grabbed him in the hallway and said, this patient is doing badly. I think that's the kind of situation that Greg Moore is referring to here, and I can think of at least two states where it's gone in different directions. 
one case, was a very famous case in the state of Illinois, the patient had probably been given, instead of a 10 units of insulin, had been given 100. Oops. Whoops. And it's now going down the tube and is becoming comatose and not doing well. And, of course, he's involved in the care. Now, how is he to know that the amount of insulin hung in that bag was 100 and not 10? But that particular case, the physician was found to be covered by Good Samaritan, although it's an in-hospital event. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should look at what they said, that there was no previous relationship. It was not his patient. He was doing it basically because the nurse had grabbed him and pulled him in, and no bill was sent. I know that states have taken different views of this, and I thank Greg for bringing that up. He's made a second point here, which I think needs some elaboration, and that is with regard to the Daubert v. Merrill Dow case, which we quoted, I think, several times in yep. the past. Can you just remind us of what that Well, was? Daubert was a case, actually it had to do with Bendictin in pregnant women. And some of the testimony, one of the people who gave testimony, basically was giving testimony which was outside what the usual bounds of scientific knowledge were. Greg points out in his letter, let me quote from it, frequently the Daubert case is cited with some liberty, as we usually do in this taping, what it stands for. It is not really an indictment of guns for hire, i.e. testimony which is highly subjective, Mm -hmm. but what it is is a statement of what the science really shows and points to. And Greg points this out very nicely, and he says, quote, the testimony must be scientific in nature, and the testimony must be grounded in a knowledge base which is accepted by other physicians. Now, that doesn't mean that physicians have to agree, but if you've got an alternative position, There has to be some reasonable, substantial number of physicians who believe one thing or another. And a good example of that, which we will segue into in just a second, is the TPA question. I think there are perfectly good and honorable physicians on both sides of that debate. And you can carry on a reasonable discussion that way. Greg also points out that the scientific knowledge must assist the trier of fact in understanding the evidence at hand. That is, just because you make a strange or bizarre statement doesn't mean that it has influenced the finder of fact, which is usually (laughs) the jury, Mm -hmm. in making some sort of decision. So you have to relate in some way that error or that unusual science to somehow interfering with the ability of the trier of fact to make a decision, which is exactly what they said took place in the Bendictin matter. The other thing is, to quote the court, and of course, Greg being an attorney actually has looked this up, this entails a preliminary assessment of whether the reasoning or methodology underlying the testimony is scientifically valid, and whether that reasoning or methodology properly can be applied to the facts at issue. What does that mean? Well, that's legal gobbledygook for, it ought to have something to do with why the patient had a bad outcome. And that ought to be grounded somewhere in reasonable science. What it's basically saying is it's not enough for an expert to say, well, I'm a doctor too, and this is what I think. Mm -hmm. Because if you are a quote-unquote expert, you're bringing a level of knowledge of what the current scientific base is for making decisions. Now, that doesn't mean it's always right. I remember cases which were decided in the 50s and 60s on retrolental fibroplasia in infants who received too much oxygen 
in their croupettes and that sort of thing. Quite frankly, people thought that the oxygen caused the retrolental fibroplasia. What it really came out after the science was developing is that that particular defect or lesion was caused by the prematurity. The oxygen actually had nothing to do with it. But during that period of time when those cases were going forward, that was the prevailing mythology. And so it would be considered reasonable scientific fact at that moment in time. Today, you couldn't get away with that. But at that moment in time, it certainly fell within the range of what reasonable physicians might believe caused the harm in these cases. Has cases ever been reversed? Let's say you went down for $10 million because at the time all the experts said X equals Y, that this thing is associated, oxygen is associated with retroalentoral fibroplasia. It then turns out that it's not. Has anybody ever successfully gone back and said, look, I told you I didn't do anything wrong. I want my money back. I want my good name reinstated. Does that ever happen? I've never heard of that happening. Now, someone out there, all of our good listeners, Greg Moore, if you're listening, if you know of that ever happening, I'm not aware of it. If it's happened where somebody went back and said, look, five years ago we made this decision based on totally erroneous data. I just don't think the court system generally works that way. Mm-hmm. Once you've lost the money and you've lost your appeals, pretty much the money is gone. By the way, try and collect it. Right. I think that would be a very difficult process. But we thank Greg very much for keeping us honest and writing in, and we look forward to your future letters. Excellent. All right. Another letter. Greg. A fan of Risk Management Monthly. We love those. Yeah, well, there's one. <laughs> we need one anyway. I wonder if the following may be an appropriate topic or perhaps better reserved for another forum. Said our group's last journal club, we reviewed treatment of PE. Frankly, we couldn't find any good support for the use of TPA. Mm. Let me just tell you, Enrique, you're not alone on this question. And who's going to give that drug and the downside of that drug? is amazingly complex. He said, we invited one of our local CT surgeons who is very supportive of immediate embolectomy for moderate to large size PEs. He brought up a good point, even in patients in which TPA may work, it will take a while and the outcome would likely result in chronic pulmonary hypertension for the patient. Now we are working on a protocol with our local CT surgeons for embolectomy as a first-line treatment on such cases. Yeah, there's no study that I'm aware of that shows an improvement in mortality. There's a number of articles on thrombolytics for PE, but they look at surrogate markers. They look at, did their blood pressure get better? Did they look better? Do we think that it worked better? There was one in the New England Journal a number of years ago, but there's no randomized trial that I'm aware of that has ever shown that it results in improvement in mortality. This letter actually comes from Enrique Enguidanos, who has been a listener for some period of time. We appreciate you writing in. Let me just say this. I want to take a non-scientific, a medical legal view of this one. We now have a therapy, which we know is probably effective, which is immediate embolectomy. But how many places can actually do an embolectomy? I know of very few. And if you actually wandered in today to the 4,100 emergency departments of the United States, and I think that's about the number, I bet there aren't 200 who could immediately take you to an operating room and get something out. And in some of our biggest centers, 
the university of this or that. If you think you can walk in right now and 10 minutes later be up in the operating room, I think you're smoking dope. I think that you do not understand how these things progress. And the giving of TPA, although it's not perfect, it certainly can be done in smaller institutions and in other institutions that, quite frankly, do not have CT surgeons who are immediately available. You know, right where you are today, Mel, at the University of Southern California, what are the chances you're going to be in the operating room in 20 minutes having a pulmonary embolus removed? It's not going to happen. I was thinking about actually the broader implication of what you're saying because it requires all the plants to be aligned. The thoracic surgeon actually has to be there and not across the street doing his private patients and the OR has to be open and you have to make the diagnosis. And so that means that there is different standards of care, right? So at 2 a.m., he's going to get thrombolytics. And on that one day of the week that you might be able to do an embolectomy, maybe he gets an embolectomy. What does the law say about these differing standards of care depending on the day of the week and the hour of the day? Well, in all truth, the standard of care is that which a reasonable physician would do under like or similar circumstances. You and I depend for our ability to practice on everyone around us and those support mechanisms we have. When I'm at a smaller hospital, which does not have in-house anything really except us, we're the only doctors in the hospital, I'm not a worse doctor or a better doctor than I am in the major center, but it is different. And not to recognize that is a huge mistake. When I go to court, I often have to point out, just because something is seen on TV or something is written about at the Mayo Clinic, having been performed and successful does not mean it is the standard of care in the country. And at two o'clock in the morning, what you can get done at the Massachusetts General Hospital and what you can do in Keokuk, Iowa are totally different. And we should not think that there is going to be a single standard of care in this country. You can wish for anything you'd like, but it's not going to be that way. It never will be that way simply because of the regional differences and what's available. And unfortunately, a lot of what's published tends to have major center bias as to what ought to be done. And in most major centers, there may be some of these things available, although I've yet to see a study that says how quickly most of these people actually get to the operating room and have their embolectomy performed. I mean, it's such a rare thing, although at our conference last year, and a guy came up to me and goes, Mel, I want to show you this incredible video. And the thoracic surgeon literally was walking through the emergency department on his way home, said, is there anything going on? I'm going. And this PE guy rolled in and he took him to the OR and pulled out this giant clot and that probably saved the person's life. And even the thoracic surgeon said, you know, I haven't done one of these in 10 years. It was just pure chance that I was there. What that is, is that is the stars aligning. Whatever it is, God love this person. (laughs) But to think that you're going to make that a CT surgeon wandering through the department as the standard of care, sorry, it ain't going to happen. Is this person asking a slightly different question, though, is since we haven't definitively proven that TPA saves your life, although most of us would do it if we had a sick and dying PE patient in front of us and they're hemodynamically unstable, I think many of us would push the TPA in the hope that it saves a life. Is that considered the right thing to do? Or can you say, look, there is no evidence. I'll just put them on heparin and I'll put them in the unit and we'll see what happens? I think that the standard of care is that which reasonable doctors could say is reasonable therapy. Right now, I think either one of those would meet the standard of care. 
there's a reasonable group of people who believe that the PE might be removed or melted or whatever it is with the TPA. Other people who say, you can't fix that particular clot. The only thing I can do is prevent the next one coming along, which is going to knock them off. And I think that you're taking the articulation of this point to such a fine level there that I think either one could be acceptable standard of care. But you're right, the proof, the data which would support a strong bias toward one or the other really is not there. So it'll probably come down to how well you chart again. If you chart that you're going to give TPA, say this person's unstable and I've tried everything else and they're still looking very bad and I'll try TPA and the hope and some of the studies have shown that it might work. And if you don't do it, you could say the same thing. It's unlikely to be beneficial and the complications may outweigh the risks. There are three points here that if you want to have appear on that chart to take care of yourself would be number one. This is what I have available to me. There is no thoracic surgeon. We aren't going to the operating room. We aren't doing this or that. Number two, I've explained to the patient and the family or those in the decision-making role that this is a last-ditch effort to try and save their life. And the last one is I've exhausted all other possibilities at this moment in time. You can do only what you can do. I think I pointed out once on this series already that I was the only doctor in the hospital when 13 children in a bus were hit by a cement truck. And 13 kids were coming in. Seven of them would, in the next four hours, go to the operating room. And by the way, they were taken by a neurosurgeon who had actually done his complete training in general before he went there, an older guy. He was willing to come in and help me out. It was the most frightening night of my life in emergency medicine. And it was an amazing time to think of what should be done, what we teach. Did all those kids get a rectal? Did they all get this? Did they all get that? The answer is no. We were doing whatever we could to start lines, keep their pressure up, get an OR crew in. I mean, it was misery. It was absolute misery. But you know what? At that moment in time, that's what I could do. And I don't know what we do about this. And I think a public that is reasonable has to give us some leeway on this issue. Because if they're looking for perfection, they need to get a religion. If you want perfection, get a religion. Because you're not going to get it in any profession like medicine, which has choice, variability, and total differences in resource allocation. It will not happen that way. Well, just as a clinical aside, and I have to find out who gave me the DVD of showing and pulling that clot out, it shows you that the size of these big PE clots is enormous. They're just absolutely huge. When we give TPA for stroke, when we give TPA for MIs, we're knocking off a little bit of clot. These gigantic clots, the amount of TPA we're given, it's not going to fix that. Yeah, no. no <laughs> it's not going to get rid of that saddle embolus. <laughs> Some of them look like cobras that have been put in there. They keep pulling it out, pulling it out. Exactly. Exactly. And to think that a little heparin's going to take care of that or the TPA yeah. that we give is going to do that so, is difficult. So do the best you can and document what you did and the cards will fall while they fall. Well, I think that reasonable people can only do reasonable things. And you will always find some physician somewhere who will say, I would have opened them right up at that moment. <laughs> While we're talking about this, there was an episode on ER, which I think we're going to get into a little bit yes, later on this tape. And they actually had sucked a pulmonary embolus out of the lung 
with a needle, an 18-gauge needle and a <laughs> syringe. And I called up Lance Gentile, who, very nice guy, was a writer for ER at that time, an emergency doc. He came and spoke when I was made president of ASEP. He was the speaker we had. He and I were perfectly good speaking terms. And I called up Lance and said, Lance, you can't be sucking PEs out of the chest with a needle. People will start to think that that's what we do. He says, I know, I told him that, but it was such good theater. <laughs> he says, you understand, I'm in the theater business. And believe me, this is a problem. Because there are people around the country who believe people come in and five minutes later they're being pushed to the operating room. If they believe that, we've got a serious problem in communication with the public. Because that's pretty much not the way it happens. Right. All right. Well, we're on the mailbag. We've got a letter from one of our strong supporters, although he hates what I had to say about Pinot Grigio. Uh, and, <laughs> I like Pinot Grigio. I was uh, well, upset at that. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> Rob Wood from Toledo, again, likes us, but he had a question. He said, I have a question regarding the OBS unit at our hospital. This is a classic. Sunday through Thursday, patients at our facility that present with chest pain and have reasonable risk for disease that gets ruled out, stay in the OBS overnight, and then get stressed the next morning. However, <laughs> if the patient has the identical same symptoms, but they come in on Friday or Saturday, they get a serial rule out, and then they get scheduled for their stress test in the next couple of days as an outpatient. Now, what he says is, I realize that either patient in this scenario can have a negative stress and still have an acute MI later. But my concern is my liability since we clearly have two different quote-unquote standards of care depending on the day of the week. I would think that other hospitals do exactly the same thing due to limited staffing and services, but what's the risk? Well, Rob, great question. Bottom line is this, you don't run the hospital. The first person I'm looking out for is the emergency deck. And to a great degree, you can only do what the hospital allows you to do. Now, if you look at all the literature, if you've had a six-hour rule out, three negative sets of zymes, and four negative EKGs, your chances of dropping dead in the next 30 days are less than one in a thousand. At some point in time, now that we're into an era of change we can believe in, <laughs> we're going to have to ask some serious questions about our limitations. And I think that one in a thousand, is that an acceptable miss rate? I don't think there's anything that we can do about that. Remembering that your hospital fortunately can do at least five days a week, that's terrific. There are plenty of hospitals in this country where people get ruled out in the department and then are set up for elective studies on an outpatient basis. There's lots of data to suggest that that's actually the way most of the world works. And considering the literature which has been published, I would think that that would have to be considered a reasonable way to go. Now, if the patient is continuing to have pain, if the patient is having dropping blood pressure, if the patient is having other things which would keep them in the hospital, we understand that. But, you know, we probably don't have the resources or the money to work up everybody in the hospital at that point in time. It's a point that keeps coming up. In fact, tomorrow I'm giving a lecture here on the American College of Cardiology Guidelines, and they state explicitly that if you've got that low-risk patient and you've done the signs, and just as Greg has talked about, it's perfectly acceptable 
by the American College of Cardiologists, send that person home and to follow them up with further workup as an outpatient within the next 72 hours. But it's the same thing that, well, sometimes we do it one way and other times we do it another way, but you're saying that's not up to you as the doctor. You're not doing one set of zymes one day and two sets the next and three sets the next. What you're limited by is something that's bigger than you. And because of that, you can just write that down. Look, we don't do them on the weekend, so therefore I'm sending the patient home. And it's not unreasonable. See, I don't think a doctor should acquiesce to craziness. But by the same token, if the data as it now stands is that your chance of being dead in the next 30 days is less than one in a thousand, I think that we've now brought this thing down to an area where waiting a few days to get the stress test is not unreasonable as long as the patient knows they can return immediately if they're having further symptoms, that they are entered into the healthcare process, they understand the need, will follow through, you've assigned them or gotten them a physician who will make sure that they get through the process. You know, come on, give me a break here. What are we going to do with all these folks? And if I went to Los Angeles today, where you work, Mel, not everybody gets their 12 hours in the department and their stress test that day. Is that a fair statement? That is a very fair statement. Yeah. At <laughs> some point in time, you know, I've been to Los Angeles. There's not a lot of bodies laying around <laughs> on the street from people who were sent home from the emergency department after their negative six-hour workup, which, in fact, I think, in all truth, that as this data is coming in, we'll probably be doing less workup, shorter periods of time, making more decisions this way. If you have the luxury of immediately stressing everybody, God love you. And we don't know what to do with the newer technologies. Is the 64 slice scanner good enough? Is it the standard stress testing? Is that good enough? Because none of it's perfect. Right. If you're looking for the 100%, I don't know where that is because nothing's 100%. This chest pain thing probably produces more anxiety within residents and graduates than anything else. Greg, I'm seeing all these chest pain patients, and I know I'm going to send somebody home that's going to have something <clears throat> wrong done. So part of the question is, if I just had the right technology, I'd be okay. And then on the other side, you basically are telling us you're never going to find that magic technology within our lifetime. Every now and then, one in a thousand will go home and have something bad done, and your job is to do what the reasonable standard of care is for your community at that time, which is stress test, no stress test, did the EKGs, I wrote a good chart, I talked to the patient, and then, yes, every now and then somebody's going to drop. You can't worry about it. Well, you can be concerned that you're becoming lax, but if you followed the steps that you've spoken about, that is not an incompetent physician. That's a physician who understands what the reasonable limitations of the system are. Hear me now and believe me later, as Hans and Franz used to say, <laughs> But if you think that over the next 10 years, we are not going to see a serious fight in this country as to what workups ought to be and the limitations of those workups, you're not aware of what's going on. Anybody who thinks we're going to seriously drop health care costs in this country with the electronic medical record, that's maybe the 1%. The real percentage is understanding who we can't do anything good for who were spending too much time and money trying to pick up nothing, and then how are we going to limit that sort of stuff? We got into that discussion today, as you'll remember, with EMS. Sorry for all you EMS fans out there, but there's very little evidence that anything that comes out of the drug box in the field actually changes any outcomes in the department. It costs us a lot of money, 
just the continuous training of paramedics, EMTs with fire departments, that sort of thing, it has become a national obsession with very little positive outcome. We could discuss this a lot, but I always make the argument as well, we don't want to shine the bright light of science too much on emergency medicine as well, because we might find that 95% of what you and I do every day is not proven and is not worthwhile. So yeah, yes. we have to use some logic here. <laughs> yes, exactly, in taking care of ourselves. Exactly. Well, I want to thank everybody who's written in and let all the listeners know that if you write, Mel and I and Rick usually write back or we talk to you on the phone or we'll do whatever we can do and we're happy to immortalize you on following programs. So please write in. We're happy to get your feedback and we want to hear about it. Well, actually, since you've said that, while we've been doing this tape in the last 30 minutes, I picked up my iPhone and got an email and here it is. You know, a few months ago we did a tape and we talked about interception and some other issues. And so David Dubois sent this email. It says, Mel, Rick, Greg, and Dr. Selp. What was his name? Selbs. Selp. Yes, Steve. Steve. Yeah, did a great job, by the way. That was a classic issue. It was very good. He said, regarding air contrast enema, it's both diagnostic and therapeutic for an interception. What if the radiologist won't do it in a case of possible perforation because they have no pediatric staff that are nearby? What are your thoughts on this, gentlemen? So what do you think, Greg? Well, first of all, the emergency doc, again, he can't make anyone do anything. I would love to have dictator power and make people admit. I'd like to make them take people to the operating room without a CT scan on obvious appendicitis in 12-year-old boys, things like that. But what I know is there are limitations. The important thing is we do not subject patients to a danger just because doctors feel uncomfortable with the situation. You know, someone once said, the person who feels that they're not competent is probably right. <laughs> they probably define their area of competence and expertise. What you can't do is not know what you're going to do when the situation comes up. This isn't a surprise. We know it isn't available. So the best thing would be to have an alternative, i.e. transfer to another institution if it's a reasonable distance, consult with surgery at some moment in time. The only thing which is a mistake is not to know what you're going to do under the situation given your resources. I always think it's worse if a doctor doesn't know what he has that night to back him up in the emergency department. When you're hunting around, because if you have to spend time hunting for doctors, you're not actively moving the patient toward resolution of the problem. And that is a serious situation. You ought to know, given a certain set of facts, whether you can or cannot handle the situation in your hospital. Because not to decide, unfortunately, is to decide. Right. And that's the worst situation, is when we're constantly in doubt and not solving the problem for the patient. Well, it's interesting because Steve here agrees with you, Greg. He says, this is a tough one. Complications are very rare, but a surgeon capable of handling a complication should be nearby and aware of the study. If you need to, then you need to transfer the patient to another facility where they are comfortable with doing the procedure and have a surgeon that can look after any complications. Yeah, Steve understands the problem. And the worst thing you can be in is a situation where you do not have the backup to deal with what you want. Now, this will always happen on Sunday night, somewhere near midnight, when there's not the backup you need at that moment in time, and you need to be prepared to respond in that situation. 
I've got a follow-up question then myself. Let's say that you're in Alaskan <laughs> hospital. Right. Six hours away from the nearest general surgeon. But I do have a radiologist and I do have a kid with misception. Are you protected if there's an institutional policy that says, look, 50 times out of 51 times it's fine just to do the air contrast enema and it'll pop back and there won't be perforation and they'll be fine? And so our institution policy is just to do it and then if there's a complication to transfer them. If you're the doc on and they have that complication, does that institution policy protect you? I think it certainly helps. The other thing is, what's the downside? If we were dealing with a problem which could go on for a day or two without consequences to the patient, that's not true within a susception. Six or eight hours of intussusception, and you could have dead colon sitting in front of you. And so in that situation, in the Alaska situation, it always blows my mind, by the way, that Alaska is almost the size of the United States east of the Mississippi River. It has 10, count them 10 fully staffed emergency departments with physicians 24 hours a day. I want you to put your mind around that. That means in one corner of Los Angeles County, you have more than that. And this is in something the size of the eastern United States. This is where telemedicine and robotic surgery and things like that may actually have a big future because there's no way that you're going to be able to practice the way you do in Los Angeles County or where I'm from in Ann Arbor, Michigan, like they do in rural Alaska. And anybody who thinks that there's a consistent standard of care there is crazy. Yeah, I always find it funny because you always have these Alaskan docs come up and they come to their CME event and they say, well, what would you do in this situation where I have a 12-hour transport time of a patient with dog sleds and fixed-wing helicopter? And and I'm like, "Uh, why are you asking me? You're the expert at this. I have no freaking idea what I do. You do this every day. It's funny. Well, where you're from, in Australia, they have the Outback docs and the flying service the flying and that sort doctor. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I don't know why you'd fly in a doctor. To do complex procedures, you need a team. Right. It was pointed out to me when I was a medical student that one of the surgeons kind of looked and said, well, what would you do if you saw this huge accident and blood coming out and all that kind of stuff? And he says, the best thing you can do is clear the way for the ambulance crew. Because what you're going to be able to do at the scene at that moment in time is relatively small. He says, we depend for our quote-unquote greatness on a system. And people who can do things, maybe small things, but you put all those small things together and you have a workable, viable system. And I think that's probably right. Yeah, the best thing you can do is dial 911 as you're driving by (laughs) at 70 miles an hour. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, Mel, again, thanks for everyone who wrote in. We appreciate it very much or called in. I want to talk about an issue now which is not pleasant. It is uncomfortable. But most emergency physicians try and pretend that they know nothing about, nor do they want to know anything about, their actual insurance policy. Emergency docs honestly believe that if they decide to do something on their own in a certain situation, of course the insurance policy which they have with their group will cover them. Newsflash, that's not how emergency medicine malpractice policies are sold. They are sold to be site-specific, action-specific, patient-specific. That is, you're not covered if you do things outside the hospital. If you want to volunteer your time at a rock concert, at the diabetic camp for children, that sort of thing, 
I would make sure, call your insurer, look at the policy, see if you can get a blanket coverage. And I've done this for some of our docs. I've written to the insurer of the group and said, look, we give you very good business. They're going to do X. We want you to cover that experience under the policy. In general, they will do that, but don't assume they will do it unless that that's been laid out way in advance. Number two, this is the rule you must believe in, no chart, no coverage. Nobody, no insurer is going to put their risk forward to protect you if you do not have a remembrance of that case. They will not do it. And I think that to believe that anything else is taking place is a huge mistake. What about if you lost the chart? Let's say you came to the emergency department, we did everything right. I can tell you, in our hospital, Greg, we lose charts all the time. And the courts instruct the jury to assume that the lost records are most favorable to the plaintiff's position. You see, maintenance of the chart is the responsibility of the institution. It's very clear that you have an obligation to maintain those records for an extended period of time. The patient owns the information. The patient is in charge of the information on their chart. But the maintenance of the physical chart is the responsibility of the institution. I've been involved in this probably two dozen times in various cases. And every time, the direction of the court is when there's a piece of paper missing, assume that that would be most favorable to the plaintiff's case. So maintaining records is not a casual or a haphazard business. This is essential if we're ever going to put up a reasonable defense. How am I then protected? Let's say I saw the patient and I wrote a beautiful chart and my stinking hospital lost the chart and I lose the case and I'm getting sued for a million dollars. Can I go back and say, well, I'm going to sue the hospital for that million because my chart would have saved me? First of all, almost always they divide up responsibilities. They will give what they call specific verdict. And that is that the jury in most states, in most jurisdictions, has the right to assign 10% to you or 40% to Dr. X, Y, or Z. You know, emergency physicians, about 60% of the time, are sued with somebody else. Oh, it's nice uh, to go to court yeah, with friends. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. You can all hold hands <laughs> in the defendants. Yeah, you can carpool. Exactly right. But the key here is the institution has institutional responsibilities. Those are separate from your doctor responsibilities. Just for example, if the nurse, if you'd ordered 10 of morphine or 100 of Demerol in the old days, I had this case, and what the nurse gave was 100 of morphine. Mm. Now, why she would actually do that, I have no idea. When you actually have to open multiple bottles of a medication, it ought to dawn on you that there's something not right, but it happened. Now, the physician is not responsible for checking every detail of everybody's job. That's why nurses have an independent license, and they have an independent duty to make sure they do it correctly. As a matter of fact, if you order something like 100 milligrams of morphine, they have an independent obligation to come back and say, Doctor, look at this order again. It makes no bloody sense. And in most cases, you say, 
it's a hundred a Demerol. Give me what I want, not what I ask for. Exactly. But when it does happen, there is independent liability here. Let me tell you where this really comes up, this no chart, no coverage. And that's when you think that you can give health care casually to someone. If the neighbors want you to take a look at it, whatever the problem is, I don't care if you do that as long as you understand your willingness to give an opinion establishes a doctor-patient relationship. After all, you could have sent them to the emergency department, couldn't you? You have no equipment. You don't know exactly what's going on. You have no testing ability. Be very careful of being sucked into this be a good guy. Just take a look at X or Y. Dr. Little and I frequently come out on a case of an internist who gave an opinion for his friend, the pathologist. Pathologist had some sort of pain in his great toe, and the internist asked his friend, the internist in the hallway, what do you think that is? He said, well, it's probably gout. So he put him on colchicine. No chart, no nothing. And so now he gets a little rash, and then within 24 hours, he's in Stevens-Johnson syndrome. No records, no nothing. Now, he goes on, needs a renal transplant, has other problems. Do you think that family, the family of that pathologist, that doctor, is going to have any sympathy for that internist at that moment in time? Not a bit. You know, the reason we can tell these stories, no chart, no coverage sort of thing, is because we've seen it. We've watched doctors who think that they can get away with things and it's going to cover them. Let me give you another example, an EMTALA violation. What makes you think an EMTALA violation is covered under your insurance? That is a volitional act. You have knowingly violated a federal statute. What makes you think your insurer is interested in that? In fact, in my other role in my life as president of an offshore reinsurance company, believe me, listen to me now, believe it, they can agree to defend you under something called rights of reservation, which means we'll start to defend you, but if there's a loss, it comes out of your pocket. It doesn't come out of the insurance company's pocket. I would be very careful about extending my liability without asking serious questions. You can get yourself into real trouble. So the best thing is the emergency department's there. We're not talking about emergent situations where you start CPR or where, right. where we stop bleeding. But when you voluntarily enter into usual and customary health care, I would have somebody covering that. Because you know what? The last thing you want to do is put your EF Hutton account at risk. But it's just very difficult because there seems to be there's this basic social contract. You're a physician and you have friends and friends ask you all the time, well, what do you think <clears> of this and what do you think of that? And you help them out. You do it because you know that emergency department visits are expensive and waste a lot of time. I guess what you're just telling us is, okay, be a nice guy, but realize that if you get sued, there's nobody there to carry it. There's no insurance company that's going to cover you. Exactly right. In truth, you can't expect them right. to bear that brunt because the basis of them forming a defense is what? The chart, chart. that you produce. <laughs> Could I provide a chart? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you can make up anything you want, <laughs> but I think it's dangerous business to be passing out medical care, which is not documented. In fact, this always happens. I don't know an emergency doc who this doesn't happen to twice a month. Somebody who works in the department comes up and says, what do you think of this? Or would you just take a quick look down my throat? Or, you know, I've been feeling really sick. Just 
examine me quickly. My usual response to that is, I'm happy to take a look at you. Do me a favor, get a chart made. If your insurance doesn't cover it, I'll write it off. Why would I give you worse medical care than I would give to any other human who came in here? If someone came in off the street with no money, drunk out of their mind and covered in shit, I would still do a reasonable job on them and write up a chart and go through my usual process. So whatever it says, just take a quick look at my this, that, or another thing. You know what? I don't know what that means. Take a quick look at my headache. No. If I'm going to look at your headache, I'm going to do it the way I've looked at every other headache for the last 35 years, which is correctly. And for them to think that you should put yourself, the institution, everything else at risk, I think that's improper, really. Well, this is a really big deal because this happens all the time. Last week, the lady who helps clean our house, a lovely lady we've known her 15 years, got a sore throat. Right. And so I take a look at it for her. I'm like, eh, it's nothing, you're fine. You've got a viral syndrome like everybody else. Let's say that she decides By the way, Mel, to sue me. She died yesterday. <laughs> Mel, I'd just like to say that her healthy. six children have said, if only Mel had done it right, we would be fine. Yes, right. We've heard that, Mel. But... This is what docs do all the time. We do it all the time. And you get away with it 99.9% of the time. What I don't want is whining and crying. When we don't. When you don't get away with it. And the truth of the matter is, there's going to be somebody ask you to do something, and something will go wrong. I mean, I have those cases where good people who wanted to do the right thing didn't think it through three chess moves down the board. That's the guy who donates his time to the diabetic camp. And so do you think a 12-year-old with diabetes and his belly pain, maybe that was the beans he ate at dinner, could it be his appendicitis? Well, that's the case that I've got. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to be very, very careful. And by the way, of course, do you think his insurer wants to cover that case? Uh, no, he doesn't. I promise you that. What about then, okay, I want to take it to the next <laughs> level. Then, Is there insurance I can get on my own? in my life that's being a nice guy and just helping people out looking at their throat and the one in a million that comes up and they sue you, is there any insurance that I can have, umbrella insurance or something that says, you can't take my house and my kids' education and my cars if you sue me for something like that? Well, first of all, suing you these days, in most jurisdictions, your primary residence is protected. Also, any qualified pension profit sharing plans, assuming there's any money left in them <laughs> at this moment right in time. Yeah, right, right, right. Now that your 401k <laughs> has become a 201k, <laughs> but almost always in this country, in virtually all states, qualified retirement plans, pension plans, that sort of thing, are protected. Primary residences are protected. Monies that you've put aside in trust for children, things like that, are probably okay. But you're going to have other assets which are out there. You've got to think about these mm -hmm. issues down the road. You can buy umbrella insurance policies, but you can't afford to insure yourself against everything. So some of it is a behavioral change or at least a thought process mm -hmm. which says, what's down the road if X and Y occurs? And I think you need to ask those kinds of questions. I think that's fair. Now, what the smart guy does is ask, if I'm going to donate my time or effort to the diabetic camp, let me tell you where most of these things are now, is doctors who've decided that they want to be the high school football team's team doctor. You better make sure 
I would check with my carrier because now you got a kid who you send back in and now he's got a subdural. Or you've got a kid who gets hit, you look at him on the sidelines, think it's all right, and now he's got a fracture that isn't properly taken care of. I would absolutely advise that you look and see what that coverage is. In fact, the school system, if you're going to donate your time, quote unquote, probably ought to get a policy for you that covers that. By the way, this isn't unique to medicine. Everybody from the Boy Scouts of America to every other do-gooder organization in the country is having trouble getting people sit on their boards because of the difficulty and the cost of directors and officers insurance, which covers you for just these sorts of things. You want qualified, excellent people to sit on these boards, but they don't want to sit there if every one of their decisions even if it's a philosophic sort of decision, will threaten their financial base. And I think it's reasonable for doctors to ask those sorts of questions. And so you'd be one of those people that would say that, particularly sort of the doc-nurse thing, uh, doc, can you just give me this prescription? Can you just look at this rash? In the emergency department, like come up all the time and ask you that, you'd be one of those people that say, no, the institutional policy here is, if you want me to look at that, we generate a chart. We don't necessarily generate a bill, but you have to get a chart made and do this properly. I want to take a positive attitude here. Of course, I want to take a look at you. You're my friends. I'm happy to do it. Help me out. Help me. You like me too, don't you? (laughs) Just do it right, which is, I'll tell you what, most hospitals, and we've had this problem over the years, where an attending physician will come down and say, I just need a quick tetanus shot. I don't want to get a chart and all of that stuff. You know what? We don't do that anymore. And if you need to protect yourself with policy, always blame the great they. They don't let me do that. Who's they? Nobody knows who they is. <laughs> it's the great they, the same ones who fly the black helicopters. <laughs> and what you need to do is be protected by the institution on that and say, The rule is in this department, we need to do this. By the way, the nurses are all covered by insurance. And I always tell them, if there's a problem with this bill, you know, they don't cover the doctor's fee or something, I'll write it off. It's not the money issue at that moment in time. It's the long-term liability question. And again, they always want it fast, hot, now. You know, it sounds like my high school dating career. (laughs) But what they want you to do is bypass the usual and customary things you would do. I understand it. I understand why they want that. It just is. It ain't perfect. And if you believe that someone who is injured or it doesn't turn out the way you want would not sue a doctor, you're wrong. I've got plenty of those cases. So I think that we need to step back and say, what is the most reasonable policy for this institution? Now, you're a paid minion for the county of Los Angeles. They're in so much deep trouble now, I have no idea what anybody would do if they sued them again. But let me tell you that what you don't want is to be personally held liable for something. This is very good advice. This is practical because this is stuff that comes up all the time. All the time. In the end, know your risk and then you'll decide. If you're going to quickly look in the throat, now you know your risk. That if they decide to sue you, then... You're on your own. Yeah. Good here's, luck with that. Here's the only function of this course and program and all of our tapes, making our physicians more knowledgeable so they can make informed choices about taking risk. Mm-hmm.
Absolutely. All right. I had to get that one off my chest because of a recent case I was dealing with. But what's our next topic, Mel? Well, I've got something really fascinating here, and it was sent <clears throat> to me by Joe Sex. Now, many of you know Joe Sex. He is an ER doc in Los Angeles, and actually he trained at UCLA. He was a number of years ahead of me. And he's been one of the main medical directors of the show ER, which finishes in the next month or so. And he's also a writer, and he wrote one of the episodes just recently, and many of you probably saw it, which was this elderly gentleman who came to an emergency department who was a little bit delirious, and he kept flashing back to 1968, seeing emergency medicine how it was back 40 years ago. And Joe wrote this really great episode because it was the 40th anniversary of ASAP, and he thought this would be an interesting way to show people what emergency departments were like 40 years ago. As part of his research for that, he found this emergency department handbook, and we'll have to ask him one day where he found it, but it's called Emergency Department, a Handbook for Medical Staff, and it was published by the American Medical Association in 1966. In this handbook, it goes through a number of big-time cases that occurred in the prior few years, five court decisions, and we were just reading through this, Greg and I, and I thought, maybe we should talk about some of these and see how things were 40 years ago, and in some of these cases, 50 years ago, and how they're the same or different today. So I'll read the cases and we'll have Greg comment on some of these. So here's the first case. It's Wilmington Hospital versus Manlove, which has a slightly different connotation now. Yeah, we shouldn't have Californians <laughs> talk about this. Go ahead, Mel. In 1961. So... The hospital maintained an emergency ward. A four-month-old infant under the care of two physicians was brought to that emergency ward. Alarmed over the continuingness of the child, the parents brought him to the hospital because the physicians were not in their offices. A graduate nurse on duty in the emergency room refused to admit the infant because he was under the care of physicians and because she concluded that there was no unmistakable indication of an emergency. Several hours later, the infant died at home of pneumonia. Denial of a summary judgment for the hospital was affirmed on appeal. The Supreme Court of Delaware said that a private hospital has no legal duty to establish an emergency ward, but that if it does so, it may not reject a patient if there is an, and I've got to flip the page here, if there is unmistakable emergency. The court raised but did not answer the question whether a nurse is competent to determine whether an emergency exists. It also noted that there is a difference between an emergency arising out of an injury and one arising out of a disease. What say you, Dr. Henry? Well, this is a very interesting case. In fact, whenever we teach medical legal, the man-love decision is always discussed because it is the first sort of nail in the coffin of putting together Mtala down the road. Now, the decision came down in 61. Mtala will not hit the beaches till about 85 or 86. But what happened in this case is that what they finally went on record as saying is the hospital, whether it is private or public, most of them took public funds under something called the Hill-Burton Act. And in that, they agreed to provide a certain amount of charity care, whether they got paid for it or not. The second thing the court said here is, if you have established an emergency department and the customary behavior of the community as such, that it comes to you for emergencies, this is really a very important matter that you are a community resource in many ways. You just don't have the right to say, no, we won't see you when there's somebody who is clear and obviously in trouble. This case, by the way, has other aspects. There was a public institution someplace down the road. They could have sent them, things like that. So it became very difficult. And what the court said, because there are other institutions, 
you really, because you have run an emergency, they didn't call it department in those days, it was the emergency ward, ward, that you have some obligations and you can't just turn away those you want and see those you want. This is really the beginnings of the discussion of what's going to happen at a federal level some over 20 years later, but it's going to happen. Let me just tell you the next case that's going to fit into this, by the way, Mel. And that is Guero versus the Copper Queen Hospital. Guero is a family which had a child that was burned in a house fire just below the Mexican border. And they crossed the border to a small town, literally within two miles of the Mexican border, run by the Copper Queen Mining Company. Now, this is definitely not a public hospital, but it is the hospital that has established itself in the area. It's the only one that has an emergency department. So they present with a burned child, injured child. Hospital says, well, it's not our job to take care of Mexico, and we don't have a burn unit. Well, the Arizona Supreme Court looked at that differently. They said, you know, you're right, you don't have a burn unit, but you have sterile bandages, you have IV fluids, and you have the ability to pick up the phone, arrange an ambulance to take them to a place that did have a burn unit. With regard to the citizenship of the child in one of those magnanimous decisions, which says this is the country to live in, they said the country of Mexico did not present to you, a burned child did, the citizenship was moot at that moment. But again, now it establishes something else. Manlove said, you got an emergency department, you probably ought to see him. This one says, you ought to treat up to your ability to treat and then make a decision about what you have to do. And if you have to transfer them, that's fine, or do this and that. They didn't expect that this small hospital was going to have everything this kid needed, but they also didn't expect that the hospital was going to not participate in the care of this child. They found that to be abhorrent. Well, that's an interesting thing. And then we're going to move next to a series of decisions which took place in New York State about circling ambulances that couldn't land because people kept calling and saying, we're closed, we're diverting. Well, when everybody diverts, how are you going to get anybody seen? And finally, people got so outraged by this that Mtala came along I think it's in 85, 86, its first iteration. It went through four major changes. And we've talked about this with Dr. Bitterman on previous tapes. But there was a history in this country that got us here. Mm -hmm. And I think that the real difference between now and then is it is the clear expectation in all 50 states that if you show up at the emergency department, you will be seen. If your mama don't like you, if the police don't want you, if you have no place else to go, you can come see me. Yeah, I know a lot of people get so angry at MTLR, and it's another unfunded federal mandate. And But I've only lived here since 91, 92, and practiced since 92. But it was the bad old days, even in 1992. We would get patients <clears throat> dumped on us constantly, and there was something wrong with it. Now, you may disagree with how the law has turned out, but I think things are a lot better now than they were then when it comes to patient dumping. Well, I think it's actually just a statement of what we always did. I was never big into turning anybody away. I don't like looking at the insurance. In fact, when I was president of ASAP, somebody from the New York Times, who obviously had an agenda, was interviewing me, and they want to catch you off guard, and basically said, well, Dr. Henry, aren't you a rich man? And I said, only rich in the knowledge that in my entire career, I've never denied anyone health care 
based on their ability to pay. And I think that they were off guard at that moment of time. The truth is, this sorting of patients by dollars in an emergent situation is not only probably not economically sound, but it's certainly not morally sound. I think the great strength of ASAP and emergency medicine is we are the people who deserve to carry the staff of Escalapius. We actually take care of sick people. What a concept. Let me give you another one that's from the same handbook from 1966. This is Rush versus Akron General Hospital. In a fight, a man was pushed through a glass door, suffering cuts in his shoulder and arm and a puncture <clears throat> wound to the chest. He was taken to the hospital emergency department. The intern who treated him closed the wounds without probing and two pieces of glass were left. A jury awarded a huge sum of $2,500 damages on the basis that the wounds were sufficiently large to warrant calling in the senior doctor in charge to examine the patient. The trial court, however entered a judgment in favor of the hospital, which was affirmed on appeal. The Court of Appeals of Ohio said that there was no evidence of negligence on the part of the intern, and that an intern doing emergency work in a hospital was not held to the same standard of care as a physician and surgeon in active practice. What say you, Greg? This has been totally reversed. <laughs> you understand that in 1969, the guidelines came down. Every resident is paid for by the federal government. They believe they have paid for the services of an attending to properly supervise that trainee. It is now since 1996-1997 when they reiterated all of these rules which they passed in 69, they became serious about it. That's when the famous case at the University of Pennsylvania took place where people were sued for having senior residents doing surgery, which got billed under an attendings number. Well, the world has changed since this, and everyone's expectation is in the emergency department, you will have someone senior who has a full license and a provider number who will take responsibility for the care. And if you have a house officer, that house officer is merely an extension of that attending. An attending has to take responsibility for what he or she does. Now, to amplify that, let me tell you how far we've come. I've got a case in the great state of Texas where in deposition, an attending physician dumped on his resident and basically said, well, I obviously didn't see that case because I wouldn't have handled it this way. They merely pointed out to the attending that his signature was on the bottom of the chart and the case had been billed under his provider number. What he was guilty of at that moment of time is fraud. That's billing fraud. If you bill under Part B as far as billing services go, Part A is different. Part B means you gave a service. The feds don't care whether you give a service. They only care if you bill for it. And if you bill for that service, then by God, you better have given it. And so the entire view of a case like this one has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. Yeah, that is interesting that it is now the way it should be, which is, <laughs> I like this, though, back in the old days, you're like, oh, I didn't see the patient. Uh, well, the intern can do whatever they of like. Of course not. <laughs> That's great. You've got to remember, <laughs> I came up in the late 60s in medicine and out at Wayne County General Hospital, if you think an attending... Well, I guess we saw an attending once in the emergency <laughs> When he was sick, he came in. But otherwise, it was run by the resident service. It is so different today than it was 30, 40 years ago. It's unbelievable. You know, patients bitch and piss and moan and talk about, you know, how bad things are. The truth of the matter is, 
things have never been better in emergency departments as far as supervision of trainees than it is right now today. Yeah, I was telling today during the conference that in 1991, I was the most senior person in the emergency department, in the busiest emergency department in Melbourne at the time, and I was an intern plus two weeks. And I was it. I was in the trauma center, and I was the guy you got. And that's 18 years ago. That's frightening, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, exactly. you have no idea how frightening <laughs> that is. Oh, boy. Here's another one. Robinson versus Getty. This was Ohio, May 20th, 1961. The victim of an automobile accident was taken to a hospital emergency department. A physician who examined him decided that he only had superficial injuries and sent him home. He was later found to have a fractured rib and a punctured lung. Twelve days after the accident, a lung infection occurred. The trial court awarded $800 damages against the physician, ruling he was negligent in failing to detect the fracture and punctured lung, and that the early use of antibiotics may have controlled the infection and shortened the hospitalization. The Court of Appeals of Ohio reversed the award, saying there was no evidence that any injury was caused by delay in discovery of the extent of the injury. Witnesses indicated that the accident was the primary cause, and when they say witnesses, I'm assuming expert witnesses, indicated that the accident was the primary cause of the injury, and none testified that delay of discovery of the fracture and the lung puncture resulted in injury. The most that the evidence showed was the possibility that prompt administration of antibiotics might have hastened recovery. Probability is required, and possibility is not enough, the court said. Is this still the same today? Well, certain things are the same. I love it when you quote those quaint numbers. Somebody (laughs) awarded $800. Now, getting experts... It's 800 bucks an hour to have them show up in court. This has taken on a life of its own. I mean, these amounts of money are unbelievable. But we still have established the fact that in malpractice cases, you need duty, breach of that duty, the harm, and the proximate cause. And the proximate cause is the relationship between what you did or didn't do and the actual harm to the patient. This is still what's tried. What's interesting is, however... The expectation level today from the public as to what's going to happen when you go into emergency departments is astronomically higher. We expect certain things are going to go on, certain follow-up questions. The details in this case are actually missing. What did the initial x-ray show? What did they do? Did they plan a follow-up visit? It's true, you can't pick up all rib fractures, or is it of importance to do so? There can be post-traumatic complications, which the patient is required to participate in follow-up. But some of the elements of that case are still available. It is almost laughable, the kinds of monies which were being awarded in those days. I always remember that John Weinstein, who started ASAP, the first president, God rest his soul, told me that his first year in practice, he had to write a check to the insurance company for $42.80. (laughs) And he said that was unbelievable to him that it was going to cost him that much at that moment in time. And I could think, oh, John, (laughs) I don't want to tell you what it is today. That's amazing. Here's another one. Let's see what we can get out of this one. This is North Bloxy Hospital versus Frazier from 1962. I still, by the way, haven't even been born yet. (laughs) A man with a profusely... Uh, I hate you, children. <laughs> I have shoes and belts older than you, Mel. Go ahead. Oh, boy. A man with a profusely bleeding gunshot wound was brought by ambulance to an emergency department hospital. No procedures were undertaken to diminish the bleeding. On two occasions, nurses entered the emergency department and saw how much he was bleeding, but walked away and left him unattended on the table. 
He was removed by an ambulance to a veterans hospital where he died within a few hours. An autopsy showed that he died from shock. A judgment awarding $10,000 to the widow and two minor children was affirmed by the Mississippi Supreme Court. It was said that a hospital is not an insurer against any injury suffered by a patient, but that the hospital is liable for any injury proximately caused by the negligence of its nursing staff acting within the scope of their employment. So this is another sort of m like thing. We this don't want to look after him. Get him out of here. Well, that's another m type thing. Just the thought of moving somebody from an acute care hospital to the VA hospital. VA hospitals in general are not acute receiving centers for this kind of trauma. They do a wonderful job with certain kinds of things, but that is really not their function. And there's no question that this case today would be an absolute EMTALA violation, open and closed. You give that person the same care that you give anybody else who came in, which would be to mobilize the troops. It's hard to believe that on a gunshot wound, other types of measures were not going on at that moment in time. But again, this shows how we've progressed in our thinking on these issues. Pretty much, the public believes that they will be taken care of in the emergency department. Now, not necessarily swiftly, depending on the chief complaint. But even in your place, gunshot wounds kind of get priority. Now, I don't know, with the closing of Martin Luther King, you must be getting more and more of this sort of thing. I mean, it's got to go somewhere in the city of Los Angeles. And I'm sure there's being handled in an expeditious manner, pretty much. Yeah, just the fact that that could happen is now to us just it's amazing. This was not uncommon. I talked to a trauma surgeon. He was 86 years old. I was playing golf and we just started a chat with this old guy and he was a trauma surgeon in LA County through the 40s and 50s and and to hear the stories about how trauma was dealt with back then. For example, if there was a big accident on the freeway, who came <clears> to pick you up? Was an ambulance? No, it was a cop. It put you in the back of the cop car. They'd drive you to the local police station. They'd call the hospital and say, well, we've got a guy here. looks like he's got a couple of bones poking out of him. What should we do? They might send over a little truck and come and get him, or the cop might have to drive you over there. And depending on who was on as to what would happen, that was really just like the old West out there just 50 years ago. As a trip down memory lane for our listeners who don't remember, most ambulances in the country at one point in time were owned by local funeral homes. <laughs> If you want to talk about an inherent conflict of interest, that's it. But even in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I practice, I was part of the transition from ambulance service, which had ties to a funeral home and that sort of thing, and the same people involved, to an actual independent community-based system. And it was unbelievable. In fact, the thing that always impressed me the most was that the hearse and the things used as ambulances had a strange similarity to them, although they were painted different colors. <laughs> Here's another one and the last one here. Suburban Hospital Association versus me, Winnie, January 29, 1963. A laboratory technologist or laboratory technologist at an independent laboratory cut her hand on a broken test tube. She went to the hospital emergency department where she was treated by a foreign house officer. She was told that if the tendon was severed, she did not want the wound sutured, but wanted the tendon to be repaired immediately. The resident, however, sutured the wound, and there was later found that a tendon had been severed. A later attempt at repair was unsuccessful, and the technologist was left with a permanently rigid finger. A jury awarded the complainant, the 
Court of Appeals of Maryland reversed the judgment. It said that there was no evidence that the action of the resident was the proximate cause of the bad result. Medical testimony disclosed that most surgeons would close the wound first and repair the tendon later, and that only a few would repair the tendon initially. The court said that the jury should not have been permitted to speculate on what the result might have been if another procedure had been followed. What do you think? Well... I think that some of the science has moved ahead. And what we all know is the hand surgeons did a beautiful series of studies where they took chicken tendons and cut them and then repaired them over a period of about two to three weeks. And it is true that in the first several weeks, it probably doesn't make any difference when the study is done. The facts of the case today, however, would require us to look at various things. Did the house officer, he would have to be supervised today. There would have to be an attending who was involved. There would have to be a discussion with the patient that, could the tendon be nicked? Yes, that's why we're splinting it up today, and that's why we're having you seen in a certain period of time. The science here was actually pretty good at that moment in time. There probably is no reason to initially do that tendon that day. However, there is a reason to follow the patient up at a fairly close time interval to see how it's healing, what's going on, and whether intervention is actually required. And today with wound cases, and I have a few of these right now, I have a very significant multiple tendon case. Everything has to do with the follow-up instructions, where were they supposed to go, who was supposed to review the hand, Worse than that, it's one of those industrial medicine cases where they were then sent from the emergency department. The company wanted them follow up in a week or so with their company doctor or some clinic that they had a relationship with, and it didn't go quite right. But the same issues come up over and over again. But again, I think that it's the expectation question, and today the expectation is that those charts will be better. We will know what happened. We will know who was spoken with. And we will better be able to decide whether the care met the standard of care. Now, you've said before, and other experts we've had on have said before, that when defending cases, you really don't like to defend on the basis of something bad happened and there was proximate cause. They're harder to defend, those cases? Well, this is the post-hoke argument, which is, it happened after I saw you, therefore, you're at fault for it. We would prefer to defend a case whenever it comes up on a standards basis. It Mm -hmm. met the standard of care as opposed to defending it on the basis of what happened. Because with the best of care, bad stuff still happens. The best cardiac arrests ever run still result in the same outcome 99.9% of the time, and that's a dead body. And that doesn't mean they did anything wrong, but that the outcome was sealed. This patient in this case did cut their tendon, at least partially. I'm sure that's the case. And the best of care at that moment in time probably wasn't going to stop some further deterioration. It's in the interim, however, that care could have been given, may have been given, if she'd been re-examined, re-seen by the hand surgeon at that point of time, where we would have expected no harm from that miss. Right, so you like to defend on standard of care, so make sure that your chart says, I practiced at the standard of care. Exactly. It's not the proximate cause defense. That's a tough defense. The standard of care defense is the easy defense. Well, let me ask you one last question before we go into the wine of the month, because we're almost out of time here. And this came up again during our conference this morning, which was, we were talking about DNR. 
We're talking about DNR orders. So I have this specific question for Greg because I'm increasingly aggressive about not starting resuscitations. So where do I stand with that? I've got this person who comes in, they've got cancer, they arrest in front of me or they arrest just before they get to me in the field. I increasingly don't even start the resuscitation. I've decided that this is medically futile. Where do I stand medico-legally if the family says, you didn't try CPR, you didn't try and save Grandma, she's 112 years old, I'm going to sue you for lost wages. Grandma was going to make another million dollars in the next five years. Where do I stand with not starting a resuscitation? It's reasonableness. We've gone through several phases of this. It's been to the point where people will bring in the DNR order with them. And they say, well, it's out of date by a month or something like that. You know what? That kind of ridiculousness is basically going away. I think there's a greater and greater understanding in the country that death is the end of life. Some people are going to die. In fact, everybody is going to die. We're just talking time interval here. If it's a hangnail and you don't resuscitate them, there's a problem. If this is somebody cachectic from cancer who looks dead and the EMTs have started in the field and you don't continue it on, I think that's a perfectly reasonable medical decision which can be easily defended. I think that this is the kind of situation where the country has to really reevaluate the entire question of what the function of the healthcare system is. If we believe it's giving you meaningful years as opposed to whipping dead bodies, this really does need to come up. But taking a non-aggressive approach, I think, is more and more becoming the standard in the country. And I have yet to see, and this is my experience, but I have yet to see the case where the emergency doctor made a reasonable decision about not starting an arrest where they've ever been sued. Right. Now, we have to obviously be careful and not play God here. And we talked more this morning about, okay, you start the resuscitation and the defibrillations don't work and the rhythms just are bad. And so you do early termination. There's different ways of looking at this, not starting versus early termination. But that makes me feel better because I'm done with trying to resuscitate the 106-year-old who's cachectic from cancer. People are freaking out. There's no DNR order. Yes, there is. This is clearly futile. Right. I'm not doing it. Well, the great question is always, why was EMS called? You know, you're allowed to die in the nursing home or at home. I mean, this is the kind of thing that the first person who ought to be called is if there's family there, they can probably call their family physician to sign the death certificate and bypass the emergency department completely. There is no requirement that your body pass through the emergency department on its way to the pearly gates. We're not a shortcut entryway to the pearly gates. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in these <clears throat> nursing homes, or sometimes it happens less now than it used to, just freak out. Grandma is dying, and I'm freaking out, and I better send them to the ER for a second opinion about if anything should be done. Okay, right. I look at Grandma. No, you're right. Uh, nothing can be done. The end. Yes. Just because they come to me doesn't mean I have to do things. That's exactly right. You are not obligated to do ridiculous things. There's a series of cases on that, one of which includes the Massachusetts General Hospital. If you talk about a place that does a lot of things to a lot of people, but one of the physicians had decided that we'd kind of gone far enough now. Family was very upset, you know, it's my favorite aunt, all that sort of thing. And you know what? The trial court upheld this. There was no reasonableness, no reasonable expectation of life after those procedures. At a certain point in time, we have to ask some questions about how we're going to distribute resources. 
All right, let's end it here, and of course, with the most important, by far, overwhelmingly, the most important part of this series, which is Wine of the Month, Chris. Well, thank you very much, and Rob Wood, <laughs> we're back online now, as far as you're concerned. We're not going to talk about Pinot Grigio. I love Pinot Grigio. I understand that. <laughs> but considering everything and the economic conditions of the country, and the fact that last month I talked about a $48 bottle of wine, which, by the way... I think is not unreasonable considering how well it's reviewed. Let me give you one now, which is California, which is Louis Martini, which is a bulk distributor, obviously has made wine for a long time. This is Sonoma County. And Parker gives the Louis Martini 2006 Cabernet Sauvignon a 90 rating at 17 bucks a bottle. A 90 rating. We have people, if you look at all the Californians that he reviews, most of them at the 90 level are in the 50 60 $70 range. Now, I know people will thumb their nose and say, well, Louis Martini, that's sort of pedestrian wine. You know what? One of the best wine critics in the world says, this is good stuff. For that much money, you know what? I'll drink that. Not a problem. In fact, Mel, it's time for you and I to imbibe. So It's after midday. <laughs> so this is Greg Henry. And Mel Herbert. Saying goodbye for now, and we'll see you next month. We'll see ya.